0: No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, February 22nd, the professionalized childhood edition. I'm Gabriel Roth. I'm an editor at Slate Magazine, and I am the father of Eliza, who is seven, and Leo, who is three and a half.
2: I'm Rebecca Lavoy. I'm a journalist and podcaster in New Hampshire, and I am mom to Henry, who's 16, Teddy, who's 15, and a stepdaughter, Lily, who is
1: 17.
3: And I'm Carva Wallace, a writer and podcaster in Oakland, California, and I am father to
1: Georgia, who is 12, and Ezra, who is 14. Uh, today on our show, we have a question from a listener whose four-year-old son is mean, and another from a listener whose eight-year-old daughter is kind of boring and never wants to leave the house. Uh, plus, as always, we will have triumphs and fails. We'll have recommendations. On Slate Plus, we'll be talking to uh, mom and dad are fighting host emeritus, uh, Allison Benedict, uh, who will be sharing a story of a catastrophic Pinewood Derby catastrophe. Um, first up, though, uh, it's time for triumphs and fails. Rebecca, triumph or fail.
2: I've got a triumph, but it's not mine. Full disclosure. Hmm. Uh, I just are we want allowed to, to do other
1: people's triumphs? Now? Yeah, this
2: week we are. This week we are <laughs> today. I'm, <laughs> I'm doing I'm Admiral
1: Nelson it. at the Battle of Waterloo, one <laughs> no, of the great triumphs.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think when you hear it, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Okay, I just want to um, say, uh, you know, a big triumph. I think to the parents of these teenage kids from Parkland in Florida, the parents who are letting their kids. Uh, become activists in the wake of the shooting at their high school who are letting their kids use social media 24 hours a day, who are letting their kids be who they are, doing television interviews, batting down nutty, crazy conspiracy theorists, getting out there, saying how they feel. Um, I really, you know, give a lot of credit to these parents. I think that it must be very, very tempting to. Uh, you know, bring your kid inside and never let them go outside ever again after something like this happens to them and after they experience this kind of trauma. But really, um, these kids are extraordinary. If you've been following them, I really encourage you to follow them on Twitter. If you're on Twitter, um, just watching them handle themselves, they've um, just, they're extraordinary. And I give a lot of credit to the parents uh, and their triumph this week for just letting them be them and um, do what they're doing. So I am giving away my triumph this week to those those parents in Florida. If that's okay, Gabe.
1: Is that okay? (laughs) That's fine. (laughs) And let's cut out the bit where I was obnoxious about it at the beginning because I didn't realize you were going to go serious. (laughs) No, 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 it's on the record now, buddy. (laughs) No, no. You are officially, I am officially an asshole. Yeah. Um, Great. Carvel, what about you? Triumph or fail?
3: Uh, I mean, as always, uh, every day is filled with many, but I'm going to go with a triumph this week, which is that this weekend was Black Panther weekend in our household. We went to see the movie twice. We had, we invited other kids from our ancillary community group to stay with us over the course of the weekend. We had one friend of Georgia stayed with us for three days straight, saw the movie with us twice. We just got super embedded in it. And um, we went to a premiere, like a technical premiere, even though the premiere is the night before. We went to a Friday night showing late at night at the Grand Lake Theater in Oakland, where the lot of the movie takes place, and uh, it was just such a scene. Everyone was there, all this stuff with a line, and there were, and all these friends, and everyone was trying to coordinate to get in and figure out where we we're going to get seats. We couldn't all sit together. We did see the movie. That moment when it said, uh, at the very beginning, when it said Oakland, California, 1992, the entire theater just blew up. And from that point on, everyone was just so excited and engaged. The kids were super pumped. And then, but because our seats weren't super great and because the audience was, like, talking and yelling for, like, 90% of the movie, we ended up missing a lot. So we went back again for a Sunday showing, which we also had to wait in line for, which was pretty crazy. Um, and then we got really good seats in that one because we we handled it a lot better. And then after the movie, you know, we – this was, again, with a friend of George's who had been with us for, like, 72 hours, um, just would not leave our family. And so we spent the whole weekend with her. and uh, And then afterwards we just had – such long and involved discussions about every personal social political spiritual aspect brought up by the film the kids were so engaged it was just such a great it was such a great experience all the way around so it was like seeing it was like my college friends got to like talk politics with my kids which was amazing and my kids friends got to talk politics with my college friends it was just the whole thing was beautiful so that's that's our triumph for this week
1: that's awesome um, if anybody listening to this hasn't read Carvel's great piece from the New York Times magazine about the significance of the Black Panther movie, uh, you should definitely read that piece. I will post it on our Facebook group and on our show page. Um, I have a uh, fail. I have a fail, and it's a fail that has been sort of long running and slow motion, um, but it's it's a classic two children fail. <laughs> Um, When Eliza was little, we had this kind of precious rule that she didn't wear any clothes with like cartoon characters on them or like licensed stuff on them because we thought that was like tacky. So she didn't wear like a shirt with My Little Pony on it or whatever. And that was fine. Like we just told her like, no, you don't wear that. And that was, And she didn't make a big deal out of it. And she was a very sensitive first kid. And we sort of were able to pay a lot of incredibly close attention to all of the details of like what does she wear and what does she eat and what does she do. Uh, and so we were able to make this, uh, as I say, rather precious anti-commercialist uh, choice. Um, and then, you know, now we have two kids and uh, the problems get a little trickier and and uh, Leo wants to wear whatever. And at some point in his wardrobe, a Mickey Mouse T-shirt showed up and then he only wanted to wear the Mickey Mouse T-shirt. And then when the Mickey Mouse T-shirt was dirty, it would be a real pain in the ass getting him to wear anything that wasn't the Mickey Mouse T-shirt. And so we wound up getting him like another Mickey Mouse T-shirt. And then he only wants to wear, now he only wants pajamas with cartoon characters. And so we recently transitioned him out of diapers and into underpants. And in order to make underpants exciting, then we got characters from TV shows on the underpants. And so now half of his wardrobe is all cartoon characters. And we didn't quite notice that, like, well, this used to be something we gave a shit about. And now it's impossible (laughs) to understand how or why we would give a shit about that. Just like I need you to put on your underpants and put on your shirt and, and get ready to go to school or whatever um and and recently like eliza was like how come he gets to wear all of these clothes with fucking mickey mouse and pluto and jake and the neverland pirates and woody and buzz from toy story and why does he have all of these clothes and i was never allowed to have any of these clothes and um we kind of were forced to confront the fact that like a lot of stuff that we had thought was important when we were raising one kid turns out to not be important in any way And um, so we have said, okay, now you can get a T-shirt with a cartoon character on it if you want. But frankly, she's seven, and she doesn't really want a T-shirt with a cartoon character anymore. What she wants is to be afforded all of the same rights and privileges as her (laughs) younger brother. And unfortunately, the the ship has sort of sailed on that one. Um, So that's our fail of the week. And and, it doesn't seem like there's much we can do about it at this point.
3: Hmm. No, you just got to take the L on that one. Sorry. Yeah, I <laughs> think we do. <laughs> I think we do. It's a
1: long-term, slow-moving L, and, and we're going to take it.
2: So are you willing to go on the record to other parents saying that, like, this is an unimportant thing that they shouldn't spend time and stress uh, thinking about when they're with their first child? Are you willing to do
1: that? I mean I don't know about shouldn't but I will you I, recant? I guess <laughs> I guess will what you I
3: publicly disavow your absurd position. What
1: I would say to parents if you're a parent with one kid who's intending on having another kid at some point, I would say think about decisions that will scale Like,
0: (laughs) think about making decisions (laughs) that you'll
1: be able to continue to enforce (laughs) even when things are two times as difficult, not, or like exponentially squared as difficult. Um, that would be my advice to other parents. If the, like not having Mickey Mouse on the T-shirts is really a big thing for you to the point where you'll be willing to do it when there's two of these guys, then fine, stick with that. But just like know yourself a little better and, and know whether this is a battle that you really want to fight now and be willing to fight all the way to the end. That's what I would <laughs> tell other parents.
2: Okay.
0: With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Before we move on, let's do the business. Uh, if you have a question you would like us to answer on the air, leave us a message at 424-255-7833, or you can email us at Um I would like now to tell you about another great Slate podcast, the Slate Culture Gab Fest. For 10 years now, Slate's Julia Turner, Dana Stevens, and Stephen Metcalf have been deconstructing the week in culture. Uh, This week, they had a special guest, our very own Carvel Wallace. Um, What did you talk about on this show, Carvel?
3: Well, on this episode, we talked about the Black Panther movie, which I wrote about for, I've become, I've become an accidental expert on the film because I wrote a piece about it for the New York Times, what the what the film means. And this was a kind of post-show, like post-movie discussion, rather than like, what I wrote for the Times was about the moment, but I actually hadn't seen the film yet. So I wrote about what it meant in the larger context for this film to be made and what this moment is about in, in, in media. But on on Culture Gab Fest, we talked about the minutiae, the the details of the film and what it meant and what it didn't mean. And and we were able to do it all without spoilers at all. And so it was pretty amazing. And I highly recommend you listen because it was a great conversation.
1: I'm excited to hear that. Uh, You can hear that segment and the rest of the show by searching for Slate's Culture Gab Fest wherever you get your podcasts. Also, I have an important announcement. Our Facebook presence is moving. Uh, We are moving from a mom and dad are fighting only page to a broader community built around the uh, entirety of Slate Parenting content, including the great care and feeding advice column by our own Carvel Wallace and also by Nicole Cliff. Uh, You can find that new Facebook community at facebook.com slash groups slash Slate Parenting. Or if you just type Slate Parenting into the search box on Facebook, you will find it there. Slate Parenting on Facebook. We'll post an announcement to the old page as well. We're looking forward to some great discussions there. On Slate Plus today, we're going to be joined by Allison Benedict, who longtime listeners of this show know and love. Uh, she had a little bit of a mishap involving Pinewood Derby and a post-surgical husband This past week, uh, she's going to tell us all about that. If you want to hear that segment and another great segment every week, uh, you can sign up for Slate Plus uh, for just $35 your first year. Uh, You help cover the cost of producing this and our other shows. And in return, you get extended ad-free versions of this and our other great podcasts, along with a ton of other great benefits. If you want to support us, go to slate.com slash momanddadplus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, back to the show. Let's take a question. Uh, This came in via email. It's being read for us via Browbeat Assistant Rachel Withers.
0: Hi, guys. This question is kind of embarrassing because I feel like I'm failing here. My four-year-old son can be so mean to other kids sometimes, and I'm not sure how to fix it. He will say things like, I'm going to Matthew's house and you're not, to kids in class. Or we will have a play date scheduled, and he will say to the kid at school who is excited to come over, no, I don't want you to come over anymore. Or, I scored two goals today at soccer, more than you. I've overheard him say all of these things, and each time I am appalled. Sometimes I ask him how it would make him feel if a friend said that to him, and he says, I don't know, or goes radio silent. Sometimes I'll say, okay, friend can't come over then, if you don't want them to, and then he flips out because he really does want the friend to come over, but seems to like to control the situation and other people's emotions. Sometimes I get frustrated and apologise profusely and make him leave the situation, which usually means he will throw a tantrum. I feel like nothing works. I also want to say that he's generally a good and loving kid at home. He can be very helpful and sweet with his younger brother and is affectionate with both his dad and me. I don't understand why he acts like that sometimes. I also feel like I try so hard to teach empathy and ask him about his feelings. What do I do? Thanks, Embarrass mama.
1: Carvel, what does she do? Well,
3: I I mean, my first instinct with a situation like this, it sort of depends on how long it's been going on, right? Is it a new thing or has this been the situation the entire time, right? Has this been the situation ever since this kid knew how to talk? He did stuff like this. Because those are two separate things. I mean, I think that... There's a lot of behaviors that go on over the course of ages 18 months to five, six years old that are really troubling but are also temporary. And um, when we forget that they're temporary and you know one of the biggest like most painful parts of parenting is taking a look at a current moment in a kid's life and then projecting that forward for the next 70 years and then that puts a lot of weight and panic and freak out on the parent which usually doesn't lead to our best parenting our best parenting does not come from fear at least that's my experience and but fear is always available to you as a parent um because we do want so many specific things for our kids. And maybe even more to the point, there's so many things that we don't want. So um, so I think probably the first thing to think about is like, is this a new behavior? Or is this something that has been going on for a long time that maybe seems like more of a personality trait than kind of a current phase? So assuming that it is probably something that's come up recently, recently enough that the writer has been like, hmm, there's this thing and I should probably like, get some help with this I think all the things that you're trying to do work i think you should continue to do these things because one of the other things about kids behavior is that we don't get to in many cases immediately turn everything around at the drop of a hat we're planting long term seeds we're like giving long term context we're helping people understand things in a longer way We don't necessarily get to see the results of that the day we say it. So as wonderful as it is to say, hey, how would you feel if a kid did this to you? Or, you know, this is why we don't talk to our friends this way. Or "We're all the ways we're demonstrating empathy. Those things are valuable. But we can't measure their value by whether or not the kids then literally that moment totally changes their behavior. So um, I would continue to do those things. Um, I would also open up conversation with my son in this case, as you're describing about why he does things like this. What does it feel like when he says stuff like this? Why does he like to do that? Um, You know, like I certainly would like to explain to my kid that like this, there's a, this is not the way things are done. There's a reason why things aren't done this way. And I'd want them to know that context. And then I would want to spend some time exploring with them. What do they feel like they're getting out of this? And then I would start to explore well, is there another way that we can get that feeling without hurting other people's feelings? So I would work through this slowly and regularly. It is very uncomfortable. to uncomfortable situation to sit in. It's very uncomfortable to feel like your kid is the one that everyone is like, what an asshole. And I've been there. And, it's it it you know, we take all that stuff on as our own, but it's really important to separate our own issues about our parenting and our self-worth and what we want people to think of us. It's very important to, to not muddy that with managing and helping a kid navigate their behavior because that's when things get messy and that's when we sometimes make um, fearful, maybe angry, maybe hurtful, maybe selfish choices in parenting that we live to regret. So as much as you can, um, taking time with this to understand more about it, let it watching how things unfold, continuing to do the stuff that we actually know works, even though you don't see it working right now, is probably what I would recommend if this is something that has been going on for a long time, like two years, three years, this is something I, I feel like it is unusual. And it, it there is something to it, perhaps, if it's a long-term thing. And I might – you know, I, I don't – obviously, like, four years old is too young for like therapy or something like that. But I might reach out to someone who's a professional in this area to say like, yeah, I'm a little worried about this. I'm not sure what to think about it. I would also have a dialogue going with his teachers at preschool um, about what their experiences with things like this, what they see, what insight they could offer that I don't have. It's a tough situation. And I, I feel for you.
2: Yeah, I, I'm with you on that, Carvel. And I think that this mom deserves a lot of credit because she started her question by saying she's you know, very ashamed of this or embarrassed. And there is no shame in knowing that your kid is being a jerk to other kids. The shameful thing is when you see your kid being a jerk to other kids and you make excuses for your kid and pretend that your kid is just like everybody else and let your kid continue to be a tyrant because you are like in such defensive mode and denial mode and it is I think my instinct is you're going to be okay and your kid is going to be okay because you've identified this and I wouldn't be afraid to frame it that way when you talk to teachers to other parents just say ah this is really yeah it's embarrassing he's going through this thing not really sure what's going on with his communication it's kind of jerky and I think you'll be surprised at how much empathy uh, you'll get because I think a lot of parents have been there. Um, I agree with Carvel about it being shorter long-term, treating it differently. And the other thing that I sort of hear in this question is um, a big fear of your son's tantrums. And I'm wondering how much you are shaping your own sort of capitulation around this behavior uh, to avoid tantrums. And whether or not um, you're making different choices in order to, you know, to prevent them from happening. Um, And if those choices are maybe preventing your kid from drawing a direct line to between what he said to his friend and the fact that his friend is then not going to be allowed to come over that day. So if you're if you're trying to avoid the tantrum, in other words, you might just be saying, okay, but next time, blah, 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 blah. And then that it's impossible to draw that line. Um, that being said, it's really, really hard for four-year-olds to draw lines between something that happened 10 minutes ago and now. Like, that's not unusual. It's just really, really hard. The consequence thing, it's a very adult concept that takes a kids a very, very long time to understand. So um, I, I agree. I think talking to the teacher and seeing if they see this kind of behavior would be an interesting thing to do. Um, you may find that just like you say your son is – Different at home with his family, maybe he doesn't behave this way in other kinds of social situations, and he's acting out in a way to assert power, you know, you know, with with him and his peers in sort of different size, smaller groups, um, for some, you know, social exploration reason. Uh, but yeah, I, I I think you deserve a lot of credit for at least acknowledging it, saying it out loud, and just know you're not alone. I mean, my son Henry was an asshole for like five years when he was little. <laughs> he was either he either didn't talk or when he did talk it was like he was really contrarian and I sort of had the opposite mm. issue where he sort of ran our lives at home but then was like a, a an angel in school so like I felt like nobody believed me but like we would have to like yeah we have to like change our whole day around what mood he'd be in and <sighs> with maturity um, he turned out to be like the one the most wonderful calm kid. I know. So There's a
1: Senate page for crying out loud.
2: Yes. And so time (laughs) time does have a way of working these things out. And in, in the social situations especially, like kids figure out unless, you know, unless there's something deeper going on here, kids very often are able to figure out. Um, you know, if I want to have friends, um, I have to be nice to people. And if I don't want to have friends, I'm not going to be nice to people. And it sounds like you are a friendly, nice person. So I'm I'm guessing that you're um, trying to impart those messages. But don't give into the tantrums, talk to the teachers and, um, you know, definitely draw the distinction between whether or not this is newish, like in the last year or so or has been going on since your son could talk.
1: I, I agree with a lot of what you guys have said, but I have a slightly different reading of the letter. Like, yeah, the the kid is clearly being an asshole. Right. And and I I agree that, like, these are things that kids do and they grow out of them. And I don't think this means that, like, you just have an asshole child in perpetuity who's going to grow up to be an asshole adult. That doesn't seem right. Um but so the kid is being an asshole. The mom is embarrassed by the kid being an asshole and the mom says, you know, I I hear him say these things and each time I'm appalled. And I I don't blame you. I've been appalled every time I've heard my kid say something horribly obnoxious like that. Um But the responses that she lists in this letter, she says, sometimes I ask him how it would make him feel if a friend said that to him. Sometimes I'll say, okay, then the friend can't come over, and then he flips out. Sometimes um, I apologize to the other people in the situation, and I make him leave the situation so she has a tantrum. And so every time the response is – to tell the kid, essentially, no, this is not an acceptable way for you to be, and I'm going to punish you or, or withhold something or exert dominance against you in order to indicate to you that this is not an okay way for you to be. And I 100% sympathize with wanting to let the kid know that this isn't an okay way to be. But what we're hearing from this letter is that it's not working. She says, I feel like nothing works. She does the, the same set of strategies again and again, and the kid keeps behaving in these ways. And what it makes me think is that this is a kid who is, feels powerless. This is a kid who is doing various obnoxious behaviors in order to feel a sense of power and control over other people. You can make other people feel bad things if you tell them, I'm going to Matthew's house and you're not. You can make other people feel bad things if you say to your friend, no, I don't want you to come over for a play date today. Um, And if you're a kid who feels powerless, then that's one of the avenues that you have. I note also that this is a kid who has a younger brother, a four-year-old who has a younger brother, and so feelings of powerlessness and, and neglect sort of go with the territory there. Um, but it may be that the thing for the mom to do here is to sort of pull back on exerting the power games over the kid, to pull back on saying like, well, if you're going to act like that, then I'm going to do this and you're not going to like that um, because that seems to be exacerbating the problem. It may be that the thing to do then is to try to react Sensitively and sympathetically, um, even when your kid does something that makes you appalled and, and horrified and, and maybe you have to work to overcome your sense of revulsion and shame at your kid's behavior. Um, but you might try like doing that work and then trying to sit down with the kid and see if you can find out what's going on in that moment. And then also in other moments, look for opportunities to let that kid win. Look for opportunities to let that kid get his way, to to get what he wants, maybe something where like, hey, look, you get this and your younger sibling doesn't get this or you get to make this decision and we all have to do what you say. You can stage little opportunities like that and hopefully build up the kid's sense of like, well, yeah, I also have some power. I also get to make some decisions. Um, And that might wind up doing more to change this behavior than like trying to let the kid know that the behavior is just unacceptable and you're going to put your foot down. That's what I wonder. What do you guys think?
2: Yeah. I mean, I I think you're right. And I think that you have, I don't know, you you probably have some different perspective because your kids are closer to the age of the kids we're talking about here. Um, But you also pointed to the inconsistency, right, of the responses. And I I do think that that's probably not helping (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, end this.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't <laughs> I, I, I don't want to blame yes. the mom at all. Neither I, I, do I. Like, it's totally I natural like this, for her to react yes. in this way. I just think yes. like when you find yourself reacting in this natural way again and again and the problem isn't changing, then maybe you have to react in an unnatural way for a bit and see what you can get that way.
2: Yeah, yeah. Step out of the role of, you know, the over responsive, caring, concerned, horrified parent and just say, how would I handle this if it were anybody else in my life and not my four year old son? Is yeah. that kind of what you're thinking? Well, what if it was <laughs> what if it
1: was somebody else's kid who's being super right. obnoxious? But like you don't have own, what if you don't have ownership of this person's bad behavior in that way? Right. And right. so maybe you can let go of some of the shame and try to figure out like what is actually going on here.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do think getting letting go of the shame is key. I really do. And I, I think that she's halfway there just by seeing and acknowledging it for what it is, which is jerkiness. It's what it is. And um, it's OK to frame it that way. You know what, you know what I mean? Because kids understand words like that. They really do.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I hope some of this has been helpful. Um, let us know how it goes
0: nickelodeon's got your preschoolers covered from sunrise to bedtime with four brand new podcasts
2: grab their backpack and go on a culinary quest with dora's recipe for adventure
0: make game time great time with let's guess who with josh and blue and tuck in for adventure with nickelodeon's good night bedtime stories plus we've got a brand new season of story time with josh and blue search Nickelodeon on your favorite podcast app to listen.
1: We recently got a follow-up call from um a listener who had called in a, a few weeks ago and and told us about her husband's mother um, a toxic grandmother who, who was a uh, difficult and, and damaging presence in her family's life. Um, she followed up um, just to let us know how she responded to hearing us discuss it. I wanted to play a little bit of that.
4: Hi, Mom and Dad are Fighting. This is Leslie. I'm following up on my call from last week about the toxic mother-in-law situation. You guys were spot on with your observations from my voicemail. Um, the behavior of my mother-in-law has been longstanding, um, she has had issues with um, drug and alcohol since her teenage years, and now she's in her mid-50s. My husband has also seen this for his entire life, so he is and has become desensitized to her actions. And what I've noticed with him is that, um, especially with this most recent occurrence, he is extremely upset and um, doesn't, you know, ha- understand how he can move past these type of issues with his mom, and he seems... Like it's very impactful in the moment, but then as time goes by, he conveniently forgets about things. He, you know, compartmentalizes, he pushes it to the side, he treats it as if it's a one-time occurrence and he moves on. He just seems like he moves on from the occurrence very quickly. And he doesn't want to acknowledge that there is a pattern of behavior. And so I think that's my sticking point right now is that, I am seeing a pattern just in my short time that I've known her, um, and it is alarming. It is really alarming to me, and like Rebecca mentioned, I don't want my son in that kind of environment. Um, I think where I've also sort of become desensitized is the fact that she lives so far away, and so I don't see her that often. So I'm able to kind of compartmentalize and and move past it because of the physical distance between us. But whenever there's a threat or time where she might come and visit, then it gets me thinking again about how uncomfortable the whole situation makes me feel. So I am completely on team. Mother-in-law will never be alone with my son. I don't see any reason why I should not be around. If she is in our home or in our presence, I have to be there. I don't trust her at all. But I'm afraid that on the occasion where, you know, if my my husband is alone or something with my mother in law, he'll just leave my son with the mother in law. So definitely we have some um talking to do about that. But I'm um, just I'm glad to know that people are equally outraged and offended and flabbergasted by her thank you.
3: I mean I, I just the one thing I was really struck by, I mean I, I... This thing about—I mean, I'm—I like—I guess I'm thinking a lot about the husband in this situation too, because what she described is like, yeah, this thing about not not being able to see a pattern when someone who's new to the situation sees a very obvious pattern. I mean, like that's why I don't think that. Yeah. I think it's this. This is a person. This guy is a person who's been dealing with this stuff his whole life. His entire identity is built around it. His entire mm-hmm. identity is formed to survive it, resist it, avoid it, get through it intact. So he's built up, he's really like wound up and tied together in a whole set of personality behaviors specifically designed to navigate through the pain of having a mother like this. And so it's going to be really hard for someone to come along and basically pull the string on all that <laughs> and be like, you know, cause it's like, it's going to like unpack everything. And I, he's not ready for that. That's mm. that's what I hear because uh that is what people do who have mothers like this. You just, you build all these ways to navigate through and you uh as an adult, you know, like, yeah, you, you compartmentalize, you play dead, you get over things, you, you know, you like, you just, you, you just forge on like all that shit. Yeah, it's a rough situation and so that that, that does put the – so I think it's good. I mean as much as I would like the the father to be the first line of defense I think is what I said. Uh, it, I don't know if he's capable of that at this point for a variety of reasons that make perfect sense. And so that does put the mother in a place where she has to really, really, really be clear about her own boundaries regardless of what anyone says.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean ideally if she can just get the, get her husband – like on her side with this. He doesn't have to take the lead and he doesn't have to fight the fights. She can fight the fights because it doesn't maybe get to her in, in as deep and, and painful a place um, as long as he's on board with her fighting those fights. Agreed. All right. Um, let's take another call from a listener. Uh, if you have a question you would like us to address, you can call us at 424 255 7833. Here's a call from
0: Aaron in Kauai. Hi, guys. Writing with a question to an ongoing issue. Really appreciate your guidance and insights, especially since Rebecca and Carvel have older kids. Warning, first world problem ahead. I have daughters ages 8 and 5, and my older one is the inspiration for this email. She's smart, serious, artistic, playful and determined. I've struggled to deal gracefully with her strong will since she was a precocious talker at age 1. From the moment she could speak, she's been telling us how she feels, and it's important to me to honour her intense feelings and opinions. However, I feel that her nature is to say no to everything, and I don't want her to miss out on opportunities to grow or infect her sister with the always-no reaction. The only extracurriculars I've been able to successfully enrol her in are art camp and a a once-a-week after-school yoga class. She hated soccer, hated tap, strongly disliked her summer theatre programme, refused to take swim lessons, refuses to try gymnastics, and rejects what I think of as universally beloved activities, like going to the beach, though she loves to swim and has fun after making the rest of us miserable, and scooting on the bike path. A lot of this stuff we just do anyway with her protesting meanwhile. I should say that she has great friends, plays a ton in our neighbourhood with all kinds of kids, and is well behaved and fun at school and with extended family. From our heart to hearts, I know a big part of a strong reaction is a fear of being the new kid, not knowing what to do, or not being immediately good at things. Should I push her kicking and screaming into gymnastics, or a new camp, or sport, or music lesson? I'm desperate for her to become more open-minded, and to realise what she's capable of, but I'm tired of the fight. I might add that my husband doesn't think there's a problem, and himself is of the naysaying, stay-at-home type. Grateful to have a kid who knows what she wants and can say it, But I'm jealous of all the parents with happy, easy kids who have talents and a willingness to try stuff by this age. Appreciate your suggestions. Erin, mom and teacher from Kauai. Well, it sounds like you have um, the rare, what,
2: eight-year-old? Is that what she said? Eight? Yeah. (laughs) Who is um, comfortable in her own skin and enjoys, knows what she enjoys and knows what she doesn't. Um, I, listen... I know we, we got some pushback a couple weeks ago when I sort of talked about, you know, some you know different sort of approaches to having kids do a lot of activities versus not do a lot of activities. But in this case, <laughs> what you're describing is a healthy, happy, well-behaved girl who has a very strong sense of self, who enjoys art, who enjoys other people, who, um, from your description, will go along with the family and doing things because she obviously can't stay home alone because she's eight, so you just make her do it, and, and she always seems to enjoy it. Should you push her into doing the things she says she doesn't want to do? I honestly don't see the upside in that. I honestly don't. I mean, you have identified, and I don't know if you want to read back, you did identify something she likes, which is art. So, you know, if it's if it's a question of just trying to diversify her interests, you know, to what end? um, Do you think that your daughter might become a professional swimmer and she's missing out on that opportunity? Do you think that she might become a professional musician or soccer player and she's missing out? Or do you just want to kind of feel like you are part of the social circle of parents who are at all of these activities and doing all these things? And that's not, I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, having, you know, kids on both sides of this, because I have one who was willing to try everything and one who, Definitely didn't. Um, I understand that there are some sort of like parenting pressures to be able to post on Facebook photos from the soccer game, to be able to talk about the trials and tribulations of swim lessons and so forth. But your kid doesn't seem like she's into it. And in other in every other respect, the kid you're describing sounds so wonderful. Um, So I would maybe take a turn and just try to embrace the wonderful, well-adjusted, strong-willed, healthy Um, knows who she is, is comfortable in her own skin aspects of your kid and sort of follow her lead when she talks about the things that she really, really loves and definitely doesn't love. And the other thing I would say is I wouldn't worry about this somehow infecting your other child. Um, I can assure you that you can have (laughs) two kids who are raised in the same house by the same parents and given all the same opportunities And almost 100% of the time, they'll be completely different from one another. And it's almost impossible for one of them's negativity to make the other one negative, for one of them's positivity to make the other one positive if that's just not who they are. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I'm kind of with your husband on this one. I I just don't see an upside into pushing your daughter to do activities that she is obviously very articulately expressing she has zero interest in doing.
3: Yeah, I mean I I sort I I have a slightly different point of view. I agree with most of what you said, Rebecca. Um so I mean first like the last the last letter last line of this letter is I'm jealous of all the parents with happy easy kids who have talent and a willingness to try stuff by this age I'm here to tell you there are no such parents with happy easy kids <laughs> I assure you that's not a thing so you need not be jealous of it because no one has that I, I don't care how good people look on sa- by the time they get to soccer practice at 11 a.m. on Saturday I guarantee you everyone is living in their own private hell that's what parenting is I'm sorry but it is so so um everyone is struggling you're not struggling more than any and everyone, it does feel like we're left out or that our particular struggles are somehow greater or more extreme than other people's. And that's not as that's not the case as frequently as we think it is. Oftentimes, the situation is that our struggles are just a little bit different. They have a certain personality to them. They have a certain face to them. Um, I also, I mean, I would say actually that... Um, I think that there is, I don't think, I don't think that the, that the fact, first of all, you've been able to get her to sign up for stuff already. You think you said after school yoga and art class and whatever. And I agree with Rebecca 100%. This sounds like a well adjusted functional kid. They have friends. Uh, they do stuff. They're interested in things. They have conversations. They seem to be going fine. I do, however, detect a slight bit of budding social anxiety. here in this in this letter because especially when you talk about the kid articulating their particular reasons for not wanting to do these things it's not oh i hate gymnastics or oh i hate whatever it's specifically having to do with meeting new people and dealing with new people and that's a perfectly normal thing for a kid to have and some kids have it more than others but it's also something that we want to keep an eye on because I, i social anxiety is one of those things that can grow. Um, there is a certain, um, in some, I would say, in some cases, there is a how you intervene impacts how it goes kind of thing with social anxiety. So, it, you know, the 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 meat of this question is: um, Should I push her kicking and screaming into gymnastics, a new camp, sports, or music lesson? My answer is no, yes, no, and no. You should not push her into gymnastics. You should not push her into sport. You should maybe think about setting up a limited time music lesson situation if she expresses some interest in that. Because then you can say, okay, you do it for 12 weeks or 14 weeks or whatever number of time, six months, and then we'll see how it is. You don't have to continue if you don't like it. Maybe she'll like it. But camp, I actually would push a little harder for. Hmm. Because my experience with camp, and I'm, I'm going specifically because my son has this thing. Ezra has this thing about social anxiety. It sounds very familiar. Georgia has done everything. She's done gymnastics dance instruments like she's done i don't i can't even keep track of all the stuff Ezra tried out for soccer once, didn't get on the team, and was like, I'm never doing another extracurricular activity again. (laughs) And that's really the way he is. He does not like to do organized extracurricular activities. He also does this weird thing with the beach. We live in California. The beach is one of our things. He's like, I hate the beach. I hate the beach. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Oh, the beach is so lame. And then we get to the beach, and he doesn't want to leave. He's been doing this since he was five. And he also expresses this same anxiety about it's specifically the people. Like if I we go to a place... You know, like friends or whatever, or like a dinner party or something with, with like family friends. Most kids are like, are there going to be kids there? And you're like, yes. And they're like, good. If you tell Ezra there's going to be kids there, he gets really mad. He's like, oh, I don't want to have to meet some kid and like listen to some kid <laughs> and talk to some kid. Like, uh, you know, he's really it, – it. really that's, that's what he struggles with. And now at 14, he's been articulate enough to identify that that is specifically what he struggles with. And what we recognize, what I think all of us recognize, including him, is that – those struggles, those fears of meeting new people can grow if you don't go through the regular practice of meeting new people. The regular practice doesn't necessarily make it better, but giving in to that fear can definitely make it worse. And it can grow. And that's what you don't want. And camp is a really good place to deal with that because everyone at camp goes in. No one knows anyone. Everyone's afraid. And nine times out of ten, people end up being really psyched about camp, especially if they go to the same camp on a regular basis. So for all of Ezra's anti-social, anti-group, whatever, he loves his sleepaway camp that he's been going to once a year for the past six or seven years. It's all He always holds those memories close. And it's like a chance for him to have a positive – social group experience of meeting new kids not liking them not being sure what he thinks about them getting to know them over the course of a week feeling better having shared memories leaving it behind and then going wow that was great i can't wait to do that next year so i would actually push a little harder in camp with music lessons if she's interested i would maybe i picked that one because you can do it for a super limited time and then the other ones i wouldn't (laughs) miss it and it's just you, exactly. And right. I, think, I think gymnastics and the other stuff, I, I wouldn't, if she's not interested, I wouldn't push it.
1: That's a great suggestion, I think. I, for, certainly as a teenager, I certainly suffered my share of social anxiety, and going to camp was certainly the best thing that I had going on in my life. I, I would go one step further and say, pick a camp that's not like a camp for doing an activity. Like don't make it theater camp or art camp or like gymnastics camp or swimming camp or or some camp that's about getting good at something and being with a bunch of other kids who are learning to do that thing and are you the best or the worst or somewhere in the middle and who's better than you and who's worse than you. Make it a camp that's basically about like hanging out and and making lanyards because that was the camp that I went to. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it, it like it, all the stuff, all these activities that, that this parent is is considering and that this kid has tried and didn't like. And the the way that we've sort of professionalized childhood and turned it into like now you learn how to do gymnastics and now you learn how to dance. And then we put it on your college admissions essay and then you get into a good college and. I do not blame this kid for wanting to opt out of all of that crap, frankly. This kid wants to play with a lot of other kids in her neighborhood. That sounds like much better use of her childhood to me is playing with other kids in her neighborhood than like taking some class and learning how to do some skill that she'll never use in her adult life but will maybe help her get into college. So send her to a camp where she can chill and hang out with a bunch of different kids whereas Carvel says everyone is new and everyone is equally shy and she can sort of figure out something about who she is. And then let her do what she likes to do, whether that's sit at home and read, or play with other kids in the neighborhood, or just like hang out and and have a bit of unstructured time when she's not in school doing all of the many structured things that she has to do. Yeah. Um, that's what I think, Aaron. Um, and and good luck to your kid. I'm I'm rooting for this kid.
2: <laughs> Me too. And you're you're, you're both spot on <laughs> about about the camp answer. You really are. I have to say, I my my son goes to a YMCA camp every year for two weeks during the summer. And P.S., he tries all sorts of stuff there that I could never in a million years get him to try (laughs) if if I were to ask him to. If I were to say to him, do you want to take sailing lessons? He'd be like, nope. But guess what? He goes (laughs) sailing at camp. He does archery at camp. He does all sorts of sports at camp that he hates in his real life. And, you know, the other thing that you made me think of, Carvel, when you were talking was, you know, we're watching the Winter Olympics right now. And there was this whole news package on the other day about why Norway is so good at winter sports and the answer is because there's no such thing as competition among kids in Norway until they're 13 so they learn all of these sports at kids as kids with no goal in mind there's no goal of being the best there's no goal of scoring there's no goal of like achievement it's a goal of just learning how to do it and having it be incorporated into mm. your life and the other thing yeah. that I heard this mom say is that her daughter is afraid of not being good at things or being the best at yes. things. And there we do yeah. have this like huge like environment of like achievement and competitiveness. And as Gabe said, professionalized childhood. And I don't blame her at all for wanting to opt out either. I really, really don't.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. I uh, wish I could opt out. <laughs> I do too. All right, time my, for, whole, uh, my
3: whole life's journey is to find a way to get paid for opting out the way this kid is opting out. That's pretty, <laughs> pretty much my whole career path. And how's it so, going for
1: you? I, you know what? It's going better than expected. It's going better than <laughs> they told me it would go. <laughs> Be like Carvel. Opt out at an early age. Time for recommendations. Uh, Rebecca, what's your recommendation for this week?
2: I've got a recommendation for uh, parents with slightly older kids um, who have tolerance about uh, media with swearing in it, mild swearing, and um, things that acknowledge the existence of but don't explicitly show um, any sex. And that's that's the much, much lesser uh, part of this. So what I am recommending, because it has been so life-affirming and wonderful for us to watch this with our teenagers in the house for the last couple weeks, is the new iteration of Queer Eye on Netflix. Um There's a lot of bad stuff happening in the world and a lot of horrible rhetoric happening in the world. And I I do do not typically say, like, take a break from the news. I think actually paying attention to the news is really important, partially because it's my job. uh, And that's actually the real life that's happening around us. However, uh, this new season of Queer Eye on Netflix is only six episodes long. It is life-affirming. It has real conversations about relevant issues in it, and it's really fun, and it is just really, really great to sort of see this concept brought back to life in a way that is relevant and joyful and fresh and new. Um, It takes place in Atlanta, which is a really interesting choice, I think, to produce this season of this show. Um, And it's just really, really fun and wonderful and sweet, and there are moments that aren't perfect in it, um, but that's life, Uh, and there are other moments that made even my cynical 15-year-old tear up a little bit. So I really recommend it if you've got slightly older kids um, and you don't mind some mild swearing in the media that you watch because this is on Netflix and they do swear this time around.
1: Like what words do they use?
2: uh they say well but it's it's very it's contextual <laughs> like they'll <walk laughs>
3: no into, no
1: no no just i list just want to the hear words. the words in isolation yeah, yeah just well, say no, them plainly in a list they'll,
2: they'll, they'll walk into what? uh somebody's house and say this is a fucking disaster uh, but it's contextual sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: it's, it's it's exactly what you would say if you yeah. walked into this guy's house i promise no, it nothing is. your
1: kids haven't already heard in nothing words.
2: your kids haven't <laughs> already heard
3: exactly
1: nice uh carvel how about you what do you recommend I'm recommending a show with no
3: swearing, except maybe <laughs> maybe bloody is in here somewhere. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the Great British Bake Off. Oh, um, so good. We over yeah, it's such a and it's such a good show for families and kids. And over on uh, the Slate website in the parenting column, someone wrote in about uh, their nine year old or ten year old, I think nine, who has got gotten interested in cooking from watching all the cooking shows. And kids love cooking shows, and so they watch all the Iron Chef and like. It, You know, ultimate elimination, death edition, and stuff like that. And so this kid's really excited, and then they go and um, make things in the kitchen in inspirational fashion, throwing ingredients together. But they end up making these inedible dishes that cost like $100 worth of ingredients, and the mother's had enough. So she wrote in saying, like, how can I— Deal with this, and one of the things I realized, remembered, is that Georgia went through this phase too, where she really wanted to cook, and she was destroying <laughs> important ingredients. And um, the difference that we noticed was that when she started watching Great British Bake Off, it was a lot more focused on people following recipes cuz the, all these other shows are never about that. They're always they cut out the part where they recipe. They cut out the part where there's all the all the sous chefing and like and and pre-cooking and stuff. They cut all that out. And so kids think that stuff just magically appears and it's beautiful. These deconstructed like enchiladas or whatever. And But on Great British Breakoff, off it really is is about people just following recipes, and it's just such a sweet show, and it's so calming, and kids love it, and the stuff at the end is so beautiful that they make. And, you know, so I just remembered that that's a show we really liked to watch, so I'm recommending the GBBO. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) GBO. I don't know why I felt the need to do that, but once I was in, I couldn't get out. I had to to complete the acronym.
1: And I'm glad you did. Um... (laughs) I want to recommend uh, the Dolaire's Book of Norse Myths. If you're like me, then as a kid, you read the Dolaire's Book of Greek Myths, which is the, the yeah. famous big book with all of the <laughs> awesome Greek gods and goddesses. And I got Eliza into that at an early age, and she became sort of obsessive about the Greek gods, just as I did as a kid. Um But I had never read the Norse ones. Um, They were published later and then they were out of print and just it was brought back into print a few years ago. And I got her that one. And the thing about the Norse myths compared to the Greek myths is that from our perspective as like 21st century Americans, they are weirder. Like the Greek myths map very neatly onto like superhero movies. You know what I mean? And everybody understands like there's the 12 gods and they each have their power and their domain and they – and like they're great stories. But the Norse myths have that sort of primal weirdness to them where like the logic doesn't quite add up and the motivations of the characters are like not just sometimes base but like frankly perverse and – she was very attracted to this book, Eliza was, but uh, also when it was finished, then she didn't, like, uh, want to obsessively discuss it. She just wanted to kind of think about it for a little while. And it was one of those little infusions of strangeness that I think are important in a kid's literary diet. Um, and also, um, it's a terrific book, um, the Dolaire's Book of Norse Myths. It has an introduction uh, by the American novelist Michael Chabon, um, but um, it's a great book. You should check it out. That's our show. If you have a question for us, you can call us at 424-255-7833. This week's episode was produced by Benjamin Frisch for Carvel Wallace and Rebecca Lavoie, I'm Gabriel Roth. We'll be back next week.